So take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 3. might be quicker if you just go to chapter 4 and back up a few verses because we'll be in the end section of Deuteronomy 3. So do you like to argue? Shall I answer for a few of you? <laughs> Let me answer for all of us. We all like to argue. Some of us like to do it in our heads. Some of us like to do it through our mouths, but I'm convinced that we all like to argue. So this morning, I want to talk to you around, or we want to visit a little bit today around this idea of arguing with God. Um, do you ever get mad at God? So it would only be consistent, I think, if I told you about some of our struggles, because we've tried to do that since we've been here. So... In case you haven't heard, Teresa and I will be finishing our ministry here on the last day of July. That's two more Sundays after today. And um, so this all started back in January when uh, God began to push us towards El Paso. And uh, so we'll be going to be pastor at First Baptist Church in El Paso, but in the meantime, and especially since January, Teresa and I have been in this long, sustained argument with God. And I want to talk around that a little bit today. I think that there's good stuff for us here in the book of Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, I would say that what we have here is a ready-made laboratory on how to argue with God, as Moses lays it out for us. We're going to look at three different principles, but let me read the passage first. And uh, that way we can all be on the same page. Deuteronomy chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. And Moses says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and, look, uh, and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land uh, that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beit Peor. And what we find here in this passage now is we have begun walking through the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll probably, I'm um, pretty sure in two more sermons, I'm not going to get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. But So let me just give you a flash forward. Uh, Moses has brought them to the brink of the promised land. And as he is preparing them to go across and to possess the promised land that we will find the account of in the book of Joshua, Moses pauses and says, before we move, essentially he says, before we move onward, let's look backward and let's remember the message and the lessons that God has taught us. And so as we come to the end of chapter 3, they have already fought some of the battles that would be what we call the conquest of the promised land. And so everything east of the Jordan that would be, uh, the Jordan River that would be parceled out to two and a half tribes, uh, all of that has been conquered. That's up through chapter 3. And so now they're ready to go on a little bit further, but there is this 
this uh, little pause in the action where Moses kind of steps back from the recounting of all that God had done with them. And now he gives a little insight into what's going on with him. And what we find here is Moses and God are in an argument. So three different principles that I'd like to hand you today for your own personal toolbox as you follow Jesus in your day-to-day life. All of these tied to arguing with God. Many of these lessons have been played out in the lives of my wife and me for six or seven months now. Here's the first principle. The past or the present is not necessarily the future. I say it this way because what we really come to sometimes is when we get in situations that are not really what we want, or we have lived through situations that we think have been negative experience, uh, experiences for us, we have the tendency, some of us do, to kind of settle into that and start believing that because it was that way in the past or because it's that way today, then it'll always be that way. It'll never get better. It'll be, it'll just be life's a drag. Moses doesn't buy into that, and I'm going to show you a little bit of that here in just a moment. But I think maybe we should make sure that we're all on the same page Let's analyze an argument for just a little bit. Uh, Now, we have arguments with all kinds of people in our lives. We have those unspoken arguments. Well, that's not true. Um, Some of these are spoken, but they're spoken in the privacy of our vehicles as we argue with other drivers. This came home for us a number of years ago now. Our granddaughter, Mackenzie, is moving quickly towards being five years old. But when she was just really learning to talk well, she made a comment to her daddy uh, that was reflective of her mama who had normally would take her to daycare or wherever she was going on her way to work. She would take, actually not daycare, but to uh, Mackenzie's grandmother's house where they would keep her during the day. And, and uh, our granddaughter said to my son as they were driving down the highway and a car moved in front of them, our granddaughter said, move. And then she used another word that four-year-olds probably shouldn't use that she had heard in somebody's vehicle that was essentially an argument identifying the other person in the other car as being a little bit less mentally with it than others. We have arguments. Some of them are just to ourselves. And some of them come out of our mouths and can do great damage. So let's analyze this whole argument thing for a second. Uh, you know, I do a lot of, or through the years, I've done a lot of premarital counseling. Now, if you don't know what that is, some of you have been through it with me, so you're going to get some of this. But uh, if you don't know what premarital counseling is, the technical term is to I sit down with couples for a number of different meetings and we try to help them get a good start into married life. Because married life is so easy anyway, we just thought we would make it easier for them. And so we, we analyze some things. We look at their own personal behaviors and habits and you know how they, the family that they come from. That ought to scare some of you. Uh, and all of that, we lay it out. And so we talk about things and how these influence the union of these two people coming together. Married life is so easy. We fight over, excuse me, argue over really important things like... Should you squeeze the toothpaste tube from the bottom or from the middle? Here's a better one for you. I I, I used that one in the early service. I had one of our church members sit with me through the Sunday school hour, and we were talking about a number of things. 
And he said, you know, in our deal, the biggest fight that we had as newlyweds and still have, excuse me, arguments, is should the toilet paper roll come over the top or off the back? How many of you say, let's go, let me go back to the toothpaste thing because that this other, I don't like being in the toilet. But um, how many of you say a toothpaste uh, tube should be squeezed from the bottom? Raise your hand. Okay, so all of you are wrong. All, if you think it, it does matter. It has to matter. It, it has to matter. But okay, so actually, I'm really glad that Barbara said that. Because Barbara said, so for those of you in radio land out there, she said it doesn't matter. But the reality is, by def, no vote, okay? Just take my word for it, it's the middle, okay? <laughs> okay, we should just pray and go home, sounds like. I'm going to miss you all so much. So, um, i got to look at my notes now. Y'all got me totally off. So let, let me come back to it. Barbara's exactly right. It doesn't matter, right? But you know, the reality is most arguments that we get into don't really matter. Then why do we do it? And the answer is because at the, if you boil down any argument, it boils down to this common denominator. There are at least two people involved. One person believes they're right, and the other person believes they're right. If you don't have that, then you don't have an argument. You might have a debate, you know, and those kind of things. But uh, when you get right down to it, an argument is coming from a position that says, I believe this is the way it should be or is. And another person says, no, that's not right. This is how it is or this is how it should be. That's the anatomy of an argument. So let's move that into the spiritual realm. Do you ever argue with God? Do you ever have those incidents, those seasons, or the situations of your life where you believe that God is not doing well? That He's not doing right by you or somebody that you care about? And that could be tied to a relationship issue. It could be tied, often is tied to health issues. It often is tied to circumstances in life where it looks like God has just gone to sleep and bad things happen. Now, I don't know how you feel about me and Teresa leaving, and I'm not trying to prime that pump. I'm just telling you that for us, as we've gone through the last several weeks, as it became obvious that we were going to be moving to another place of service, we have had many conversations with people who in one way or another communicate, I'm mad at God about this. And so we should probably figure out how we handle that. Because the reality is, in our lives, there's going to be lots of opportunities for us to get a little bit uh, miffed with God. And so that argument, whether spoken or just stuck in our heads, becomes front and center in our lives, and we have to deal with it. And here's the reason why we need to learn how to deal with it, because arguments, if they are not fixed... If you don't come to some good, healthy conclusion in an argument, it serves as a wedge in a relationship and it separates people. I've, I've never met anybody who's been going through some kind of relationship problem that didn't have a beginning point somewhere and somewhere there was a decision made by one or both that said, well, we're just really not going to work on this. We're just going to go to our separate corners and move on with life. 
Arguments are natural and they're destructive if they're not handled well. Especially if it's an argument that we have with God. So with that in mind, let me make sure we get this as it finds itself in the local church. Remember a number of years ago now during the Iraqi war and at the aftermath of the Iraqi war where George Bush, our president at the time, was over in Iraq, if I remember right. It might have been Afghanistan, but I think it was Iraq. And he was doing a news conference there, and some guy, a reporter, ripped off his shoe and threw it across the room. That was TV at its best, I thought. Here is the president of the United States, this world superpower, and some guy who writes for paper for a living or something like takes his shoe off and throws him in George Bush's dodge, like a good middle school game of dodgeball. I saw that in church one time. Actually, not exactly that, but pretty close. My dad was pastor, a little church in Central Texas. And I was in middle school, and uh, I knew at that point in my life that my dad had license to kill me if he wanted to, and nobody would ask questions. And so I was scared to death of my dad. And all of a sudden in church, he calls down, best I remember the story, he calls down this guy, this kid who's in high school, sitting behind me. He calls him down for misbehaving, and Ricky, the guy, stands up, and yells back at my dad, and then he takes a hymn book, and he launches it across the church towards my dad behind the pulpit. I remember thinking to myself, this is Armageddon. We're fixing to see a killing in the church right here. You know, arguments in church are not those things that, you know, you hear about and never happen. They're real. I remember another church sitting through a business meeting. This one also involved my dad. And the church had voted to go in a particular direction relative to a daycare, uh, if I remember right, that the church had. And one particular lady didn't like what was done. And in a business meeting in a Baptist church, she stood up and started yelling and screaming. And as my wife says, this is a Snyderism for you, she threw a wall-eyed fit in church. Not my wife, the lady. Well, she was no lady. She was a woman. I could actually just walk you through my experience in church history and one argument in church after another where the church was damaged because people took sides and never reconciled. It's a cancer in a church. It'll kill a church. And it all starts with a failure to settle in with God on a healthy level when your opinion doesn't get space. So what happens is we begin to settle into the past and the present and the, all of the angst that comes with it and all of the emotion that comes with it. And we start squaring off and we start picking sides and all of those kind of things begin to happen. And before we know it, we have division and we have broken fellowship. And somewhere in there, God, I'm sure, is going, what are you doing? And that's serious enough when it comes to church. But I want to take it and put it back into our laps now as it comes to us as individuals. Because the reality also is that we have the very real possibility to square off against God like that because something doesn't go the way we want it to go. And we look at where we are and we look at where we've been and we just lose sight of the fact that God is still God of the future just like he is of the now. And it causes us 
could just settle in into a very unhealthy kind of way. Look at what Moses does in verses 23 and 24 that helps us with this. Moses handles this disagreement with God. The disagreement is that he's not going to be able to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. God has already told him uh, years before this that because of this particular behavior, the consequence is this, and you will not be able to, to lead them across. Joshua is in place and ready to go at this point. And Moses is having this argument with God. Moses says, I want it this way. God says, no, it's this way. And in the midst of that, look what Moses does. Look for the hope that Moses has here. Verse 24, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. Let me stop for a minute. Here's the hope, right? Moses is in a situation he didn't like. I want to go over. I want to lead them over. God says you can't do it. And Moses' lead into this argument with God is based in the character of God. In other words, what we find Moses saying here is, as he looks backward, he still is able to look forward. And what informs the future for him is the character of God. You haven't, I'll put it in my terminology here. You haven't even begun to show me what you're capable of. Well, that's a huge statement for Moses. When you go back into the book of Exodus from the first part on, the fact that Moses is even alive at this point is something about God's grace and his mercy to him and his power. But the fact that then he moved through the halls of power in uh, Egypt and standing face to face with Pharaoh and shaking his finger, either figuratively or literally, and saying, you better let my people go, God says, or I'm going to do a number on you. And then God does a number on them. Moses sees all of this. And then 40 years wandering through the wilderness as God feeds them and clothes them and waters them and saves them through battles that there's no way they should have won and live through the wilderness wanderings. Moses has seen God do incredible things, and yet he camps out in the beginning of this argument with hope for the future. God, you haven't even begun to show me what you can do. That's good news for us as a church today. If you happen to be one of those who's a little bit miffed about what God is doing in my life and Teresa's life, and consequently in the life of Crestwood Baptist Church, don't miss that God loves this church. And we might have issues with him that we need to work through with him, but he's not finished here. His character is not on the line here. So we all need to settle into God loves this church. He is working through history, moving his kingdom forward. And so we find peace in that. And it begins or it needs to begin to to inform the way we view the situation. I love it when God drops illustrations of what I'm talking about straight into my lap. And it happened to me last night. We spent the day yesterday, went to my parents' house early in the morning. And uh, then after that, we went to my grandson's second birthday party. Bunch of people. Not as many as last year. And not uh, these were all older people, or most of them were. So it was a lot more fun for me. But on the way home, we're dealing with a number of things and you know just the emotion of these days. And um, Got to the house and I whipped out my phone and uh, a friend of mine who's a minister had a quote from his mama. Here's what she said. It doesn't have to be well with my circumstances to be well with my soul. 
Let me say that again. It doesn't have to be well with my circumstances to be well with my soul. You see, that's a statement of hope. That's a statement that is grounded in the character of God, not in the circumstances of the moment. It's not based in the fact that I'm a little bit miffed with God because he didn't do things the way I wanted him to get them done, but it does default back into the character of God and it allows me to sit back and say, okay, God, I don't totally get what's going on here. I don't even like what's going on here uh, in whatever it is that you're talking about in your life. But you still hold on to his character. Moses, you, you hadn't even begun to show me what you can do. Last part of verse 24, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. Moses teaches us to settle in to who God is, even when we don't trust what he's doing. All right, so here's the second principle. I'm going I'm to hit this one relatively quickly because I don't want you to live here too long, but some of us need to know that it's okay to live here for a while. The second principle is if you don't understand or don't like what God is doing, then you can tell him about it. So I think that we have this misguided sense of reverence for God. You probably should listen with both ears now for a little bit. Otherwise, you're going to misinterpret what I'm saying. Sometimes I think that we get so locked up on the cultural Christianity that is around us that we, we, we want to protect God because of his reverence. Now, that's really not a really good way to say that because um, we, it's not because of his reverence we want to protect him. It's because we've been taught somehow that you can't be honest with God when you're mad at him. And so out of that sense of guilt, we just don't say what we think. So let me just drop this truth on you. Um, God already knows what you think and feel. So you might as well tell him. It's not like God's going to respond to you and go, I didn't realize that. I did not know you were upset with me. We know better than that, right? And here, here's another good truth tied to this. God's big enough to shoulder your anger with him. You're not going to be the first one who ever got angry with God. As a matter of fact, if you buy into what I'm talking about here, you, and I'll show you the scripture in just a second where that's coming from, but if you, if, you buy in, if, if you buy into this, that it's okay to tell God when you're upset with God, then you're going to be joining some really big people in the Bible. Moses, for one, as we'll see here in just a second. Uh, but you have other people. Jeremiah, you think you, think you have it rough. Go read the book of Jeremiah. Here's a guy that had a right to be upset with God because God said, hey, I want you to do this. Jeremiah says, they're going to kill me. God says, it's okay. What? And so we find these places. Jeremiah says, I don't get what you're doing. Habakkuk is another one. Habakkuk is one of those little minor prophets. Not that It's minor because of the amount of material that's done. It's not minor because of the message. And Habakkuk on several occasions goes, what are you doing? That's arguing with God. David, other psalmists, remember those psalms that say, why do the wicked prosper? Here I am trying to toe the line. I'm, I'm a good church guy, and this knucklehead lives, 
and you're letting him get away with that? That's arguing with God. We find ourselves in good biblical company when we find our voice in the midst of the struggle. And God is a little bit on the line for us in times like that. Well, look, go ahead and look at it here. Verse 23 through 25 once again. I'm going to just drop to 25 because I've read 23 and 24 twice already. Here's, here's where Moses verbalizes it. Verse 25, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. This is not the first time he's taken it to God, but he takes it to God. It's a pleading tone here. God, please, please don't. We, I'll put it to you from a pastor's perspective. Are you kidding me? For 40 years you've made me live with these people. Now, I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about them. These were these people were rough. They tried to kill him. And God wouldn't let him out of it. And so now he gets right there to the end. It's like baking a cake and frosting it, and it looks incredible, and then you can't have a piece of it. That's just wrong. And so he pleads with God. Come on, God, really? Just let me go over. Just... Just let me experience a little bit of it. As in any healthy relationship, transparency is important. And so in our relationship with God, sometimes it's okay to let God have it. Okay, now I told you I'd be quick off of that one on to the next one, so I'll make sure you hear both of these together. Sometimes the most honest thing you can do is go to God and argue. Just careful that you don't stay there too long. Because the third principle is you have a vote, but you don't have control. That's a that's a news flash to a lot of Christians. You know, I just tell God what he's supposed to do, and then we proof text stuff out of the New Testament, like somehow we can twist God's arm and make it happen. You have a vote, but you don't have control. Look at these verses twenty six and twenty seven. But the Lord was angry with me because of you, Moses might be deflective here. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. <laughs> okay, now in my house, we have a different way of saying that. You. Um, okay, there's children in here, so I won't say it. Because I used to get my mouth washed out for show, uh, for saying shut up. Oh, did I say shut up? God says to him, I'm not hearing it. Okay, so now you got this, this a twin truth. We have the freedom to go to God and say, you know what, God, I don't get this. And I don't see this. And we need to talk about it. But there comes a point where God says, I said, this is what you do. And I don't want to hear it anymore. So let me just help you. A public service announcement. If you hear God say, I don't want to hear it anymore, it would be wise for you to drop it. Don't ever forget that God always calls the shots. Always. But you see, here's where we get in trouble. Now I'm back to the whole reason we have arguments in the first place. Remember, I see things one way, and Teresa sees things another way, and clearly she's wrong. Or clearly I'm wrong, depending on who's God in the moment. 
Because in this case, that's a small g, just so you know. Because the tendency that each of us have is to want to be God. As a matter of fact, we, many of us spend our whole lives playing God. And so if I think I'm God, and my opinion matters more than anybody else's, then if they don't do what I said, then they're the problem. By the way, you want to see an example of this? Just spend a little time on Facebook and see how many people go after other people in a passive-aggressive kind of a manner on print, and they never talk to them face-to-face -to, -face to work through things. There's no relationship. It's been broken and all that kind of stuff. And so it's this attack and then retreat. But it's all based on this, I'm right, you're not, and so you should do things my way. That's bad enough in our relationships here, but when it becomes God that we're feeling that way about or dealing that way with, uh, somehow we translate that like God needs to do what we said. And if he doesn't, then I'm going to be upset with him. And the reality of it all is that God is God, not me. You should have said amen to that and not you. And now I'll say amen to that. The fact that God even gives us a choice is evidence of his love for us. Because he could have just made this like we're just all a bunch of robots. And he just program it and we do whatever he tells us. But he gives us choice. And the fact that he gives us choice sets us up to be disappointed when our choice doesn't reign supreme. So never forget that he is God. Never forget that he is God, not me. So as we close, musicians can come on up. We're about done here. But let's wear this home with us today. Is it possible that any of us in a room this size, with this many people in it, is it possible that any of us today are in the middle of an argument with God? Now, maybe that's not the the terminology you would have used before this message. But now that we're there, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of chapped at God. I, I'm a little miffed here. I'm, I'm not really on board with what he says he's doing. If that's you, first of all, I would say own that. Call it what it is. It's okay. If you can't be transparent about that with yourself, you're not going to be transparent about that with him. And you, 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 you might not ever even address it and get it fixed. So if that is you, then maybe the next question should be, where is God in this? And how far into this argument are you? Do you trust God for the things that don't seem to go the way you want them to? I got to tell you, for me and Teresa, for the last six months or so, we've been living that question. And what I finally came to was I've, I've been disobedient to God before. That's a terrible way to live. And it drags people you love into a terrible situation. How about you? Are you arguing with God? What will you do about that? Let's pray. And as we pray, as always, I want to push you to the solution. Jesus Christ 
loves you and me. And he has gone to great lengths to secure life for us. He has the right to tell us how to live our lives. And he has input for us on how to live our lives. And he gives us the choice about whether or not we'll let him into it. So if you don't know Jesus personally, then that's the first place you need to settle the argument. And let him in. And he will give you life that will blow your mind. So if you don't know him, I would say these next five minutes are maybe the most important of your life. What are you going to do with the Jesus offer that is before you? If you don't know what to do, I'll be down front. Aaron's here. We have deacons. Lots of people love to talk to you about Jesus. Now's the time to do that. For many of us, we know Jesus, but we've not necessarily let him be the one who calls the shots. And we have a series of arguments with him because he just keeps on being God. So what do you do with that? This is a good chance to get it right. Father, we ask you to take this time, be glorified in it, change lives, and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.